Hey, good morning, guys. Why don't you greet uh, some people who are next to you? Curtis? Is Curtis here? Yeah. Hey, Curtis, can you bring my computer off my desk and the cord, please? Thanks. Hey, there's a few announcements that I have for you guys this morning. Um, first of all, if you have kids in youth group, junior high, or high school, this next Wednesday is our last um, summer uh, youth group session out in the amphitheater. So uh, kids will be meeting here at 6.30 regularly, junior high and high school. Then they'll take the next week off as a break, and then school starting up, and they're re-gearing up for things, and then the youth group usually meets during the school year at the Bridge Youth Center at 310 Main Street. So our junior high and our high school age kids will be meeting down um, starting on the 21st, Wednesday the 21st. So this Wednesday will be the last one here in the amphitheater. The Wednesday after that, there'll be um, no um, uh, church or no uh, youth group, and then the 21st youth group back at the bridge, okay? Um, also, thanks. Appreciate that. I got this old computer that doesn't work unless it's plugged in. <laughs> also, um, we have a few other things here in the announcements. One is... Um, Volunteers needed for uh, the meal train. Vicki, you're over there in the corner. So Vicki raised her hand in the amphitheater last week, as we mentioned this. Um, and we are still in need of uh, others to help out with that. So whether you're a male or a female, it's, not, it's, it's, a, it's an extension of the women's ministry. But I know you, a lot of you guys are great cooks. Jerry Green's a great cook. Um, I'm a pretty good cook. I'll, I'll say that. I like to cook because um, I like to eat. So... That's why I became a good cook, because I like to eat good food. And my wife's a good cook, too, so it wasn't that I was missing out on good food. I just wanted more. <laughs> but if you want to help others in our uh, fellowship who are sick um, or have given uh, birth or are in need of uh, surgery or something like that, and we take meals to them, speak to Vicki. You can get a part of, be a part of that um, meal team. Um, and then, uh, not in your bulletins, but there's just by way of information and an opportunity to pray together. Um, we heard about the uh, shootings in El Paso, Texas. 20 killed, 26 wounded. Uh, a gunman was um, arrested. And then uh, last night, about 1.30, between 1.30 and 2 in Dayton, Ohio, there was another shooting. Um, nine were killed and 26 were injured, and that... Um, shooter was uh, killed on scene. So um, this is not new, unfortunately, to the world that we live in right now. It's tragic, and when you think about this, you know, we're, we hear this stuff on the, on the news all the time, and we can probably become a little desensitized to it and a little distant from it when it doesn't happen right here in our own community. But um, I'm remembered, I'm reminded that um, with each one of these people who were shot or injured, 
there's moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and um, brothers and sisters and, and children who are attached to the loss of these lives. And it's a tragic thing. And um, I want to pray for our country. I want to pray for those who are suffering and um, ask God to intervene. I know that when these things happen, the Bible tells us that God will work it to good. He'll work good out of it. He'll bring good out of it. And we'll pray that's what he does again. So, And also what we know is, is that when, when these things happen, um, others are inspired to follow in uh, what has taken place. And they're, they're encouraged or motivated to do it. And the scary thing is, is not that we live in fear, but schools are starting back up. And I would sure hate to see this continue on into the school year with, with our own children or children in our, in our community, in our, in our country. So let's pray, okay, guys? Also, I want to pray for um, the uh, Southern Baptist Church here in town as we pray for other churches. Canyon Community Baptist, which is on the north side of town. And uh, they're also a Bible teaching church, so we'll add them in at this time. Lord, we want to, before we study your word together, we want to um, cast these cares before you. Lord, our hearts are, are grieved, and um, there's so many unanswered questions why these kinds of things continue to take place in our country. And Lord, the sad thing about it is um, not only this enemy um, laughing and take... Um, and, and, and likes it when this stuff happens, but Lord, he likes the fallout from it too, where we as people turn against one another on how to best handle and deal these situations, that there's such great division and divide in our nation when it comes to um, how to uh, respond when something like this happens. And so, Father, I pray first for the victims, families, their loved ones, God, those who are left behind, who are suffering, those who are with uh, a family member or a loved one who's in the hospital that may be fighting for their lives, um, those who have been injured, Lord, just the whole thing, both in Ohio and Texas, Lord, we ask that you would bring um, comfort into these situations, into the lives of these people who are now suffering that have had um, this tragedy come upon them. And Lord, for even those who were witnesses to these things that are traumatized by what they saw and what they heard. God, we pray that you would meet their needs. Lord, as we talked about this morning, about putting our hand out and touching you and grabbing a hold of you and receiving what we need, Father, we pray that you would grab a hold of those there. Lay a hold of them, Father, those who are hurting and suffering. And Lord, I pray that you would heal our nation. And then as we've walked away from you, Father, we confess that as a country, as a nation, as a people, we have forsaken you, and we're reaping the fruit of that. And so, God, um, I pray that we would, as a country, repent, that we would return to you, and, Lord, that you would use us who believe in you and love in you, love you, Lord, to um, lead the charge in that road that heads back to you as we speak truth and love those people around us. God, um, give us what it takes, Lord, to... Live sacrificially to accomplish this work for you and for your kingdom. And Lord, as we study your word this morning, I pray, God, that you would teach us, that you would show us, Lord, the benefits of following after you and doing your things your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, uh, we are in Luke chapter uh, 17 this morning. Um, 
We're continuing on through a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel account of Luke, of Jesus Christ's life, uh, the things that he taught, the things that he did, the miracles that he performed, the lives that he changed as he interacted with people and had relationship with them. And as we've been studying through the last several chapters now, I've continued to point out that Jesus was making his final journey to Jerusalem, and you guys might be get tired of me saying that, but it's the context for where we're going. And in this next chapter, um, we're told that Jesus has made his way through Galilee, the region of Galilee, which is um, expansive in the northern part of Israel, and then he's also gone through Samaria. And what this means now, if you study out the geography of Israel or if you've been there and you can remember the layout of the land, What this means is that Jesus is now very close to God's holy city, to the city of Jerusalem, where he would be put to death on the cross. Literally, he's about two miles outside of the city, and we'll talk about that and how we know that as we we draw some lines and connect some dots from some of the other gospel messages as we study through this chapter. So as Jesus traveled with his disciples, what we see at this time with this understanding, uh, Chris, can you start that clock, please? Thanks. Um, as he, he, we see that he persisted, Jesus is persisting in teaching them and preparing them for what he would suffer in Jerusalem. Um, but not only that, he was preparing them for the time when he would no longer be with them and a time for when he would, um, when they, his disciples, would be called to carry on with the work that he had begun, the work that he was now doing with them for a time when they'd be called to do it on their own, to minister to others in his place. And when we consider that, we have also been called to carry on with the work that Jesus began and to minister to others as we wait for his return. We understand that these lessons which we're reading about and which Jesus was teaching his disciples is they have application for our own lives Um, because we're his disciples and we've been called to do the work um, uh, that the early disciples were also commissioned to do. We have that same commission. Now, in this, in this next chapter, Luke records, if you're taking notes, four fundamental lessons about the Christian life uh, Jesus um, was teaching to his disciples. Four fundamental lessons. And in the first six verses, there's lessons on forgiveness, okay? Um, and in uh, verses 7 through 10, there's lessons on, there's a lesson on faithfulness, and we've kind of been talking about that. There's a little different twist in it in these scriptures that we're reading about now, but as we've been talking about being a servant and a servant uh, first must be faithful, we see again a message on faithfulness, just a little different angle on it in verses 7 through 10, and we'll be talking about that. And then in verses 11 through 19, there's this lesson on thankfulness. And, and, and I don't think that's something that we address enough uh, in our own lives is this this a fundamental truth about the Christian life, a fundamental lesson that we need to 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 that needs to be a, a part of our everyday life is gratefulness, thankfulness. Are we grateful? Are we thankful? And and there's such a challenge to do that because we live in this world that's full of bummers. I mean, and I don't mean just circumstances and situations. I'm talking about even people. People are downtrodden. They're heavy laden. They're burdened, and and they have this weight about them, and and. Um, they don't have, they have a temporary 
you know, a happiness, but there's no true gratitude, no true thankfulness. You know, you, you, so many people are complaining about what isn't and what is, and in that complaint, there's no, no gratefulness, no thankfulness, and, and that can be a negative thing on our lives, but yet we're called to be grateful. We're called to be thankful. And then lastly in this chapter, and we're not going to get to this last lesson until next week because we're only going to get halfway through this chapter this morning, but in verses 20 through 37, there's a lesson on being prepared and um, spiritual preparedness. And, and I love this lesson, and we'll get to it, like I said, next week, because I think we spend a lot of time in our lives being prepared. We get up in the morning, and even this morning as you got ready for church, you were prepared for church. You brushed your hair, you're, you brushed your teeth, you, you got dressed in your, your Sunday clothes, whatever that looks like to you, you know. Um, when we, we go on a trip, we fill our car with gas, we know where we're going, we save money, we do these things all throughout our everyday life of being prepared for different things, but yet the greatest thing that we can consider in regards to being prepared is to being prepared for eternity. And it's this awesome reminder that we need to be more about spiritual preparedness, not only for the life to come, but how, um, how often we go about the temporal things of this life being prepared for life, but leave out that there's a spiritual preparedness that we need to have for this life as well as for the next to come. So, a little insight into next week's study. Um, so with these four fundamentals in mind, let's begin by reading together for six verses in chapter 17. In verse 1 it says, And then he said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come. I wish that wasn't true. It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Let me read that again. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and 70 times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, okay, here's their response to that. Verse 5, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would owe you. All right, we'll stop there. I know it doesn't really have a natural break in the way that it's uh, written out in, the, in, in your books, but that's, that's, a, that's a natural break for where we're going at this morning in these first six verses. And if you guys remember from last week's study, at the end of chapter 16, Jesus had warned his, the Pharisees. Remember, he's talking to his disciples, and then he begins to talk to the Pharisees, and he gives this warning to them because it's the, the warning is kind of spelled out in regards to they were in love with money. And Jesus spoke a warning to the Pharisees who loved their money. And um, the warning that he gave them was about their sin of covetousness that was the result of their love of money. And, 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 and subsequently, um, the warning had this additional thought about putting trust in your possessions. And we see now that was all connected. If you love money, 
If you're in love with money, you're going to covet things. And if you're coveting things, then you're putting your trust in the temporal things of this life, in your possession, in your wealth, or, or in your education, or, or, or something that's passing away, right? Um, unrighteous mammon is one of the things that we talked about. And, and in this warning, in doing so, Jesus um, told uh, the Pharisees a story about a rich man named Lazarus, um, or a, a, a rich man and a man named, uh, named Lazarus. And um, the rich man, in the account, we're told that he had fared sumptuously every day, that he had put his trust in his possessions, and, and just like what Jesus was, was uh, drawing this connection between them and the, and the Pharisees, uh, the possessions which he, he clearly loved more than anything and then more than anyone else, including Lazarus, who was this, this poor beggar man who was set at the door, of, of this rich man, but consequently, when this rich man died, we are told that he had to face the consequences for the way that he had chosen to live. And um, uh, he ended up in a place of torment, a place of anguish. And there was nothing at that point that his money could do for him as he was taken to this place of judgment, to a place of constant and conscious torment. And, and, and through this account of, of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus made it clear of, uh, about a separal, several things regarding eternity. For example, the first thing is that eternity is for real and that no one can come back to warn us about the judgments or the life that waits um, once this one is over. It's, it's final uh, for those who reject Jesus and put their trust in temporal things. And in light of this, we see just how important it is for us to live for and... Um, to show Jesus to others on this side of eternity. When we see that eternity is real and, and, and that the choices that we make on this side of life are final when it comes to eternity and eternal things, we, we see again the importance for us to live for Jesus and to tell others about what eternity is going to be like. It's important. And um, the, simple thing, the simple statement that I can make right about that is, is right now, counts forever. Think about that. Right now, what we do now counts forever. And after Jesus had warned the Pharisees about their sinful ways, we see that he then turns back to his disciples and he warns them now in this chapter, okay, so there's all this, this discussion going on and warnings to the Pharisees, and Jesus then again turns to disciples and he warns them about the possibility of sin, their, their own sin, Jesus is dealing with the sin of the Pharisees, and the disciples are there listening in, and, and Jesus now warns them, his disciples. He warns us about the possible sins in our own lives. And he says in verse 1, it's impossible that no offenses should come. That's the very first thing. So Jesus is spoken, speaking to the Pharisees about their sin, and he turns to his disciples, and he basically says, and you guys are sinners too. It's impossible that no offenses should come. In other words, Jesus was gently pointing out that we're all like the Pharisees. We all are like the Pharisees in that we're all sinners who live in a sinful world. But just because we're all sinners who live in a sinful world, we're, we're, it's not like this license or this, this ability or this reason to make excuse for our sin or to take our sin lightly. And, and that's the context for where Jesus is going. 
Um, and because when we do, we, we, can, we can have this attitude to try to dismiss our sin or even to, to condone our sin uh, just because it's something that everyone has done or does, right? We will compare ourselves among ourselves, which the Bible warns us uh, against doing, saying not to do. But, 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 but or, 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 and Jesus went on to say that we can't do this even though offenses will come. We can't do this we, we, because Jesus said sin's a serious thing. When we sin, it's a serious thing, especially in light of the fact that our sin, and here's the context, one of the contextual reasons for why sin is a serious thing is because it can cause another person whom God loves to stumble. It can cause our brother or sister to stumble, our spouse to stumble, our children to stumble, the people at work to stumble. Our sin can be a negative influence and negative testimony to those around us. It could cause them to stumble in their faith. And in Romans chapter 14, verse 13, Paul wrote about this and he said this. He said, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Okay, in other words, what Paul's simply saying is get your eyes off of everybody else and get it on your, your, own, on, your own, on your own self. And he says, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, in order for us to understand what Jesus was referring to in verse 2 when he warned about offending the quote-unquote these little ones, we must look back to chapter 15 where these conversations with the Pharisees at this time began, right? To get the contextual, because there's, there's a whole set of conversations that are going on. And, and, and when we look back to chapter 15, what we realize is that these conversations that Jesus was now having with the Pharisees and with his disciples, they began after the Pharisees had made this complaint against Jesus, right? If you remember, they had complained against Jesus and ridiculed him for receiving sinners, and eating with them, and these sinners whom Jesus had received were those who had come to faith in him, those who had believed in him and were now following them, and by faith had come to receive the grace and forgiveness of God, these sinners. And Jesus not referring to them as, as little, and Jesus was, was now referring to them, excuse me, as little ones here in the context of sin because they were literally babes, as the Apostle Paul writes about often in the New Testament letters, they were they were now babes in their newfound faith. They were little ones. And here Jesus warned about causing one of them to stumble in their faith because, because the criticism and the ridicule of the Pharisees, these, these religious superior people in the eyes of those around them, which, was, which really this criticism and ridicule of the Pharisees by, uh, of Christ, was spurred by their un, which was spurred by their unbelief of Christ, these things could have caused these new believers who now are openly following after Jesus to be stumbled in their faith, to doubt the decisions that they had made, to leave everything behind and now follow after Christ. And so serious is the sin of causing a new believer, if you will, or a, or a little one in their faith, a babe in their faith, to doubt their faith and in their commitment to God, that Jesus said in verse 2 that it would be better for a millstone to be hung around that person's neck and thrown into the sea. And the point is, is when we, when we sin, and perhaps you've heard this before, is we don't sin in a vacuum. Our sin has effects on those around us, influences on those around us. 
And our sins, um, which, is, which is often rooted in our unbelief, will have a negative effect around us if it's not dealt with rightly. Right? First thing that Christ says is, is, is that offenses are going to come. It's how, then, it, then the question is, is how do we deal with them? Right? So that we're not causing others to stumble. The point is, is when we see... Excuse me, when we sin, we don't sin in a vacuum, like I said. So in regards to our sin, which is first and foremost an offense to God, we must realize that also our sin can be an offense to others and that God will also hold us accountable for these offenses. Not just for the sin, but for how it affects those around us. And so there's this warning for us when we are the one who sins, which at any given time is every one of us, for Jesus again said, it is impossible that offenses should not come, that no offenses should come. But in verses 3 and 4, if you look here, this is where things get flipped around. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus flipped the coin in this situation with this truth and once again addressed the issue of sin. But in these verses, what did he do? He speaks about the need for forgiveness. And that's how we make a wrong right, is through forgiveness, through restoration, and Jesus began to speak about our need to forgive when we're the one that has been sinned against. And the first thing that Jesus tells us in regards to forgiveness is what? He says, take heed to ourselves. Take heed to ourselves. And that's such a profound statement, and it's, and it's a good reminder because, I don't know about you, but, but at least myself, I know by nature, I don't like to take heed to myself. Especially in regards to my sin, or especially in regards for forgiveness and the need to forgive. Rather, I think we're all the same, is that, is, is that in, in instead of taking heed to ourselves, um, we don't do this because we, we, we don't want to see what it is that we're supposed to do. We would rather, by nature, want to take heed to everyone else and look at what they're supposed to do. And I'm pretty much an expert in that. I don't know about you guys. And I don't know about you also, but for me, the first thing I do when I am sinned against is look at the one who has sinned against me, and then I then assess their responsibility to ask for forgiveness. Rather than taking heed to my responsibility, as Jesus points it out here, to forgive them, or to my responsibility to the fact that I'm the one that's a sinner also. Take heed first to yourself. Nevertheless, Jesus tells us to take heed to ourselves, and this instruction should remind us of what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5, or 7, excuse me. Remember, Jesus speaking about, about um, sin and judging and taking heed to ourselves. He said this, he said, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And that's speaking, of course, of forgiveness. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye, Take, right? Taking heed to yourself. Or why can you say to your brother, let me remove that speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye taking heed to ourselves. So taking heed to ourselves is where we must begin, but we must be we must but or, or we must begin there because when we do, 
we will, it sets the stage for everything else that follows. I don't know how else to say it. Because when we do, as Jesus continued on to say in verse 2, then we, will, then we will go to the one who has sinned against us and speak a rebuke because we're called to do so, but it will be with the right heart. It will be with the right attitude when we first take in heed to ourselves. Where we go, okay, I need to be willing to forgive or I need to consider that I'm also a person who sins, who offends. And, then, and, and when we do so, so when we go with them with having first examined ourselves, taking heed to ourselves, and then when we go with this, this call to, to bring forth the rebuke, it comes with then, we come then with a heart of gentleness and a heart, with a, compa- a heart of compassion in a way that we would want someone to come to us. And this is possible because when we stop to consider the fact that we're also sinners who are no different than the person than who, who have just offend, that, that, that has just offended us, then we will come to them, and here's the key word, in humility. We'll come in humility and treat them in the way that we would want to be treated. And how is that? I think that's with mercy and with grace, in the way that God treats us when we come to him with mercy and grace. So first we are to take heed to ourselves, and then we are to go, secondly, to the one who sinned against us and speak to them. And by the way, nowhere in here does it say that you need to go to three other people first and tell them what that person did. I was just getting advice, make sure I knew what to do. Well, it tells us what to do. It says go to them. As a matter of fact, when we go to anyone else before we go to that other person, you know what that is? It's gossip. And the Bible speaks against that. And it's no good ever comes from it. And it's clear from verse 3 that the goal is not to embarrass or hurt the one who has offended us in these situations. What's the goal here that Jesus tells us? The goal is always restoration through repentance and forgiveness. Always. However, these instructions, even even though it's unspoken, it makes it clear that forgiveness is not to be conditional, is it? That our forgiveness is not to be conditional. Meaning if there's no repentance or a call to forgive, our call to forgive just like God forgives us still stands. Think about that. So you go and you go with the right attitude. You go with the right state of, 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 of grace and mercy and humility. And, and, and I'm sure this has all happened to us before. And you go and, 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 and reveal to this person what they've done to you. And you give them the opportunity to ask for forgiveness, and they're like, yeah, so, so why are you here? <laughs> and, and, and yet the call still remains, even though there may not be any restoration because there's no repentance, there's still this attitude in our heart that needs to be right where we've already given the forgiveness. Remember, our call still stands. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it says, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. In fact, in verse 4, Jesus makes it perfectly clear. Hear this, painfully clear as well, perfectly and probably painfully clear that we must be in the habit of forgiving. And that's so against our nature because I think we, by habit, by nature, are unforgivers, unwilling to forgive. But we must be in the habit of forgiving because if, because people, here's the reason why, because people are going to repeatedly sin. We are habitual sinners, and so we have to be habitual forgivers. 
The two go hand in hand in order for us to be followers of Christ, those who are taking heed to ourselves. People are going to repeatedly sin against us. And, and, and our forgiveness of others, if it's going to be like God's forgiveness, cannot come to an end. Aren't you glad that God's forgiveness doesn't come to an end? I'm grateful for that. And ours cannot either. And to further illustrate this point, we read about it here, but we see it expounded a little bit more in Matthew chapter 18 when, when Jesus, he was specifically speaking to Peter when he talked about the number of times to forgive. And, and we're told that we must be willing to forgive one another 70 times 7. So for you who are doing um, the math on that, 490 times, right? But that's not the point. And no one person we know is likely to commit that much sin against us as Jesus even says here in one day. None of us has come received that. 490 sins by one person in one day. I mean, break that down by the hour or by the minute. It's, it's, it's impossible. And so obviously Jesus is using hyperbole here to make a, a point. And this use of hyperbole emphasizes the point that Jesus is, is making, which is that we cannot, guys, we cannot keep an account of the sins of others and make some kind of justification for, for not forgiving them. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 6, it tells us, it defines to us God's love. The love of God which we are called, that which we have freely received, but the, the kind of love, God's love, that we're called to freely give. And in those, four, six, those, those, those verses, verses 4 through 6, it gives us this definition of godly love. And one of the things that it says is it says that love keeps no record of wrong. Ow. It keeps no record of wrong. One of my favorite movies is a John Wayne movie. It's The Quiet Man. And one of the lead characters in there, he's got, his, he's got a book, and he keeps a record of wrongs, and he's telling his, 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 uh, one of his sons, get out your book, write his name down in it, now strike a line through it. And, and they laugh, and it's kind of funny scene, but you know what? I think we do that figuratively with, with, with people we come in contact with. We have our book, and we get out our pen and our paper, and we write it down, and we keep this record of wrong. And yet the Bible tells us that biblical love, godly love, which we've received, and us in Christ no longer have a record of the wrong that we've done from God. It's been erased, forgotten, remembered no more. How too should we then live? We're called to keep no record of wrong. So the bottom line is that we should always be ready to forgive others for one day at the very least. This is the least of the reasons, but remember this, because it's impossible for no offenses to come, for one day we may need and want others to forgive us. Now, in light of these messages on sin and forgiveness, I love the apostles' response in verse 5. This is what Jesus speaks to them. They're very hard, very difficult things. And I think they responded appropriately to Jesus when they said, Oh, Lord, he said, Jesus, increase our faith. Help us to believe and trust in you and rely on you and be obedient to the things that you're telling us here. Increase our faith. And I think they did so because... It takes faith to, to obey these instructions and to ask for forgiveness when we've been sinned against, especially repeatedly, and to forgive those who have sinned against us, especially when we are sinned against. 
simply put, our obedience to ask for forgiveness. And also, I think to forgive is ultimately a demonstration of faith. That's what we're being told here. And it shows everyone around us that when we do these things, when we live like this, when we're willing to go and ask for forgiveness and willing to go and give forgiveness, it shows all those around us exactly who we're trusting in. It's a demonstration of faith and shows everyone around us that we're trusting in God ultimately to, what, to do what? To take care of the situation, to take care of the consequences, to handle all of the possible misunderstandings and work everything out for good and for his glory when we come into it and go, God, I don't know how any good's going to come out of this. I'm going to go and ask for forgiveness and all they're going to do is do it again. Or I'm going to go talk to them about their need to forgive me and they're just not, to, for them to, 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 to ask for forgiveness and they're not. And we paint this negative picture in our mind, but we take God out of the equation. And we can't do it effectively or rightly unless we're doing it by faith, in faith. And so we pray also, Lord, increase our faith so that good and glory will come out of it. And so we need to understand that forgiveness, guys, is not a cheap exchange of words. And I think that the world that we lived in has dumbed it down to that, that forgiveness is just this cheap exchange of words. But when we look at biblical forgiveness in relationship to the type of forgiveness that we've received from God and that we're called to give to one another, we see that forgiveness is not a cheap exchange of words. True forgiveness always involves pain. And if you think I'm wrong, look at the cross of Jesus Christ where our forgiveness was purchased. Pain. True forgiveness always involves pain because with an offense, somebody has been hurt and then there is a price to pay in that healing of that wound. But healing is what Jesus is about. Restoration is, about, is the work of God. And although obedience to God and love for others is what motivates us to forgive, faith is what sets forgiveness in motion so that God can use it to work his blessings in the lives of his people in our lives. And when Jesus responded in verse 6 and compared faith then to a tiny mustard seed, he's, he was conveying an idea, a very simple idea, a very basic idea, but a very profound idea in regards to faith. And it's the idea that, that, that with life there's growth, okay? And even though the mustard seed is very small, it has life in it, Right? Therefore, it can grow and eventually produce fruit, reproduce. And so it is with our faith. Now think about that. So it is with our faith. And if our faith is a living faith, if it is in Christ Jesus, it will grow and it will enable us to obey God's commands and what will be brought forth is fruit, spiritual fruit. Listen, Psalm 37, verse 1 through 5, in regards to what we put our faith in, our living faith, a faith that is alive, that brings forth fruit. I love this psalm. It says, it kind of ties all the dots together for me. It says, do not fret because of evildoers. And see, we can have fear and anxiety, and what does that do? It robs us of our faith, and we don't move forward in obedience. But the psalmist writes and says, Do not fret because of evildoers, those who do evil things and sin against us. Do not fret because of them, nor be envious of workers of iniquity. Why? For soon they shall be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Rather, what we're told, 
is trust in the Lord and do good. Don't worry about all that other stuff. Don't be afraid of all that other stuff. Don't, be of, don't have anxiety and worry over all those other things. Rather, we're called to have faith, even if it's a mustard seed. There's life in it. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He will what? He'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust also to Him. And I love this last verse. And He shall bring it to pass. And see, when it comes to the issue of forgiveness, whether it's giving it or, 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 or asking for it, there's so many things that, can, that we put as obstacles before us emotionally and even sometimes physically to prevent us from walking forward in faith and doing these things. But yet, and, and, and because we ultimately we go, it's not going to, it's not going to, Bring, it's not going to be resolved. It's never going to come to pass. But what God says here is that when we trust in him, he's going to bring it to pass. And most assuredly what will happen is, is the, the lack of peace that we have in our hearts when we're in those situations, that will be gone, that lack of peace, because God's peace will fill our hearts no matter what the outcome is, and that will be brought to pass. I think it's safe to conclude that forgiveness is a, is a test of both of our love and of our faith. And as Jesus went on, he taught the second fundamental Christian of our, of our Christian life, and it is our faithfulness. Because with faith, there must then be faithfulness, right? And so in verse 7, we read on, and it says, and, and, and this is the, the flow for the context of where we're going, and it says, in which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk and afterwards you will eat and drink. So yes, one is a rational way of thinking. The other one is an unexpected thing there in verse seven. So in verse nine, it says, does he think that the servant, because he did these things that were commanded of him, or excuse me, does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you... When you have done all of these things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants and we have done what was our duty to do. Now, when we talk about faith, especially in regards to the verses which describe having a faith to do the miraculous, okay, because that's the context for it, the type of faith that can uproot a mulberry tree and have it be planted into the ocean. And in another passage of Scripture that's, that kind of references the same things, the faith to move mountains, right? So when we talk about faith, especially these kind of verses which describe having faith to do the miraculous, like uprooting trees and moving mountains, I think we can lose sight of really what faith is all about. Okay, follow me. And this is why Jesus went on to point out that faith which does not result in faithfulness will not accomplish God's work in or through our lives. In other words, it's good to have faith to do the difficult things, like forgiving and even asking for forgiveness. And it's good to have faith to do the impossible things, like moving mountains, but it's vital that we have faith to do even the routine things that God has committed to us 
like the servant in this account. You see the different aspects of faith that we're talking about here? The servant that Jesus described in this story, I would say he's a jack of all trades since he was responsible for the farming, the tending of the sheep, and even the cooking when he came back into the house. Yet with this example, Jesus gives us something that is very relatable to us, his audience now and his audience then, since it was not uncommon for most people to hire at that time, I think, at least one servant. Historically, we know this to be true. But in this story, Jesus, in verse 7, he describes a situation in regards to the servant and the master that would be unthinkable, an unthinkable thing, which was a master who, who was waiting on his servant. That's backwards, right? It's an unthinkable thing, an unexpected thing. And of course, no one in the crowd who had a servant would wait on their servant since it was expected that the servant would be the one to wait on his master. And so, and so this story is designed to emphasize, here's the key, the story is designed to emphasize the faithfulness to duty no matter what the demands might be. Keep this in the context of forgiveness. The story is designed to emphasize the faithfulness to duty no matter what the demands might be. And, and so when the disciples asked to increase their faith, Jesus was also calling them to be faithful to the faith that they already had received. And so wherever we're at today, the issue isn't, isn't whether you have little faith or great faith. The issue is faithfulness to the faith that you have, to the knowledge that you have, to the understanding that you have, to the work that God's put before you now. In other words, if a common servant is faithful to obey the orders of his master who does not reward or thank him, how much more should we who are Jesus' disciples obey God our master who has promised to reward us graciously? Let me say that again. If a common servant, if 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 an earthly servant is faithful to obey the order of his masters who does not reward or thank him, how much more should we who are Jesus' disciples, um, how much more should we not expect any special reward since, since we are, excuse me, how much more should we who are Jesus' disciples obey God and, our, and as our master um, who has promised to reward us graciously? And that's the contextual difference with what we read here in this thing. Because the surprise is that the servant was sat down. The surprise is that the servant was ministered to or served by the master. But a faithful servant should not expect any reward since he's only doing what is expected of him and what he's been told to do. And I point this out because the word unprofitable in verse 10, the word profitable in verse 10 means, means without need. In other words, because a servant does what is expected, then nobody owes him anything, Right? And this is important to point out because the fact that Jesus will reward his servants is totally a matter of God's grace. That's what we're looking at. It's an issue of grace, always an issue of grace. And the bottom line is if we, if we, do, not deserve, if we, if we do not deserve anything, or the bottom line is, is we do not deserve anything simply because we have obeyed God and served him. So as his servants, we must be careful to not have a wrong attitude towards our duties to the things that we've been called to do. In fact, there are two extremes to avoid in regards to having a wrong attitude. 
And this will connect the dots for us. The first is merely doing our, dirty, our duty in, in, in a slavish way, right? With this because we have to attitude. So in regards to forgiveness or being faithful, are, are we doing it because we have to? Because God, it's like God said I had to do this, so um, I'm going to forgive you. <laughs> or anything else that comes along with that. That's the wrong attitude to have. And faithfulness to the faith that we have is reflected in the attitude. And the second wrong attitude would be to do what is our duty because we hope or gain, we hope to expect or gain a reward. So we do it and then we're like, God, did you see what I did? Wasn't that pretty good? How about a little kudos here or a little something my way? Now we know there's a reward coming for those who are faithful, but what's the attitude or the heart behind it? And always the heart or the attitude behind the servant that is a godly servant is one that's rooted in love, in a willingness, in gratitude, and in thankfulness, right? And we're going to get this. In light of all this, the proper attitude for, for us to have in regards to our service to do God's will is an issue of the heart. And remember, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, it tells us, saying, tells us this, saying this, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as to Men as as men pleavers, but but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And once again, we see that 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 this is a heart that is in love with God. And this is why Jesus said, in back in John chapter fourteen, verse fifteen, he said he said, "If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments." And in John first John chapter one, verses five through three. Or chapter 5, verse 3, it reminds us that God's commandments are not a burdensome thing for those who love them. They become a pleasure, a joy. And the bottom line is our faithfulness to serve God, our faithfulness to serve God and to do what he says will never be a burdensome thing when it's done with a heart that's in love with God because a heart that is in love with God is a, is a, is a thankful heart. A heart that is in love with God is a thankful heart. And a thankful heart is this last fundamental lesson that we're going to read about this morning. And in verse 11, it says, Now it happened that as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as, then as, as he entered a certain village, then again outside of the city of Jerusalem, he says, Then there he met ten men who were lepers and stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And so when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priest. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned with a loud voice and glorified God. Again, verse 15. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet giving thanks, and he was a Samaritan. And so Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? Were there, were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Now, Real quick, if we begin to look chronologically through the events that we're reading here, the, specifically the, the events that took place as Jesus made his way to Jerusalem, we know that in between what we read here in verses 10 and in verses 11, 
there are the events that are recorded in John chapter 11. You can go there and read for yourself what they are. But it's where Jesus raised Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, back from the dead. You guys remember that. He'd been in the grave for three days. And I point this out because by it we can determine that Jesus, now having gone through Galilee and gone through the region of Samaria, is now in the village of Bethany. That's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus were at. They were in the village of Bethany, which is about two miles east of Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus healed these ten lepers. And in response to their cry for mercy, he commanded them in verse 14 to go and to show themselves to the priest. And this command was a direct reference to the Levitical law, to the law of Moses, back in chapter 13 and 14 of the book of Leviticus, which commanded a leper who had been healed to go and be examined by the priest before they could be reintegrated back into society. And so this command to go and show themselves to a priest was really a call to faith. Again, a call to faith and a call to faithfulness. And the interesting thing to note is that they were not healed. None of the lepers were healed before they did what Jesus had commanded them to do, right? They were cleansed and healed of their disease, as it says, as they went on their way. Literally, as they responded in faithfulness to Jesus Christ's command, and they went in obedience to do what Jesus had instructed them to do. Also for us, we're never going to see the work that God wants to do in, and li- in our lives and through our lives in regards to even this issue of forgiveness unless we take those steps of faith and go and see the healing take place along the way. And we're not told how far all ten men had got before they were healed, but somewhere along the Jericho Road that leads up to Jerusalem, this nearly two-mile journey, they realized that they had been healed. All ten of them. However, according to verse 15, only one of them decided to return and to give thanks to Jesus for healing them. But the amazing thing is, in this account is not that, that one returned to give thanks who was a Samaritan, the amazing thing is is that the other nine did not return. That's the amazing thing. And I think it's safe to say that each of us believe if we had had been healed of an awful disease like, like leprosy, that the normal response, our response, would be to glorify God with a loud voice and return to Jesus in order to fall down at his feet and give him thanks, right? That's like, yeah, we would all do that. And how could the nine not? But before we judge the nine who showed up with no gratitude for the merciful gift of healing that they had received, we should probably, I think, look at our own selves and ask how often do we take our blessings for granted and fail to give thanks to the Lord? How often do we do that? And if the truth be told, I think we, 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 we're all more like the nine who did not give thanks in that all too often we're We're content to enjoy the gift, but we forget the giver who gave it to us. We are quick to pray, but slow to praise. And therefore, this reminder to be thankful is a needful thing since God has done merciful things, since God has done wondrous things for each one of us. The worship team comes up. Uh, I want to close with this psalm. You guys stand as I read this. In Psalm 107, verses 1 through 21, it says this. It says, Oh, give give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. 
whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul famined and fainted in them. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distress. He led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and he fills the hungry soul with goodness. Those who sat in darkness in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help them. And they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distress." He brought them out of the darkness of the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of bronze and he has cut the bars of iron into fools because of their transgressions and because of their iniquities they were afflicted. Their soul abhorred every manner of food and they drew near to the gates of death and they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he saved them out of their distress. And he sent his word and he healed them and he delivered them from their distractions. And oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. Let's pray.